Today we continue our study in the book of Revelation. We're going to start with chapter 2 today. We're going to uh, get into the letters to the churches. But before we go there, I want to read back over that vision that John sees of Jesus revealed to him um, and listen closely to that description because it's going to come up again in each of these letters to the churches. So here again, God's holy word from Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for this revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray that as we move deeper into this book, that we would see him more and more clearly so that we can worship him, so that we can be like him, so that we can love what he loves and hate what he hates. Father, we can't do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us into this book that you have signified. You have symbolized it for us. You've spoken it in the language of symbol, and we need help understanding the symbol. So by your Spirit, guide us into this book that we might benefit from it richly and receive the blessings that you have promised those who understand this book. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Are you familiar with the sovereign citizen movement? You may have heard that term here or there. It's, it's made up of people who believe that the federal government is illegitimate and they feel that they're required only to answer to authorities that conform to their interpretation of common law. Now, anytime you name a movement, there are all kinds of uh, gray gradations and, and it's a spectrum. So not everybody who might uh, subscribe to this movement might buy all of this or might only buy part of it. But, but they, they feel like they're not uh, uh, subject to the federal government at, at any level. So they reject most forms of taxation. They don't register their vehicles. They refuse marriage certificates and birth certificates for their kids. Uh, they, they refuse social security numbers for their children as well. And as you can imagine, this just lands them in constant conflict with the courts, constant conflict with the IRS, fighting to assert their independence from anything they believe to be an illegitimate authority. And so they have declared themselves sovereign, free, and independent. They are their own authority. I came across this term sovereign citizen again this last week in a news article about a woman who was running a scam on the IRS. Of course, if you were looking for organizations to run scams on, IRS is one of those, right, that you'd want to run a scam on. Uh, she does this to get refunds 
for taxes paid out of lottery winnings. And that was the scam she was, she filed tax returns to get, to get refunds against lottery winnings. The deal was she never won the lottery. And, and yet she's filing these returns. And here's the craziest part of this is that she was successful. She actually got millions of dollars back from the IRS and couldn't quit while she was ahead. A couple years ago, they wrote her a letter and said, this is kind of weird, here's your check. Um, and, 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 you know, in IRS uh, legalese, they said something like, uh, that's weird. But she kept filing for returns. And when she was finally caught and finally charged with tax fraud, her defense was this. She says, I am an Aboriginal, Indigenous, Moorish American, a sovereign citizen, and nothing stands between myself and the Creator. Nothing stands between myself and the Creator. Well, at least she recognized that there is a Creator and she's not uh, alone in her, uh, she's not totally independent. But in other words, she said, I don't have to answer to anybody but God. Now, maybe this is a fun uh, libertarian thought experiment, and, and who doesn't love a fun libertarian thought experiment? <laughs> But what if, what if everyone were perfectly self-governed? What if everybody was capable of disciplining themselves and governing themselves and had no need to submit to anyone? Well, the reality is that's just not been true of anybody ever. God has ordered the world around governing authorities. The world is hierarchical. Everybody submits to someone. I do, you do. We all submit to someone. Even Jesus submitted to the law. Even Jesus submitted to the authority in the world at the time that he lived, which was tyrannical. Even Jesus, of course, submits to his father. Now, none of us, I don't think any of us are happy with the civil authorities that are placed over us entirely. We're not entirely happy. Uh, we all get frustrated and we get tired of the overreach and the corruption and the manifestations of oppression that are everywhere you look. But in our uh, still gloriously, blessedly, mostly free society, we have opportunities, God-given opportunities to push back and vote and protest. We can remove ourselves from institutions we don't appreciate, and there are righteous ways to do all of this. We don't worship the statist idols. We don't, we don't engage in, in state worship. But at the end of it all, if we disobey the authorities that God has placed over us, it is we who will be judged for that disobedience. Back in Jeremiah's day, there's a, there's a wonderful illustration of this. Um, in Jeremiah's day, God, de God declared through the prophet Jeremiah that he was delivering the whole world into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And God says, I'm delivering the whole world into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. He calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And God says, I'm even going to give the beasts of the field to him to serve him. God declared then that the nation and the kingdom that doesn't submit to Nebuchadnezzar, God says this, that nation I will punish with the sword, famine, pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar as a force of his own discipline, as an instrument of his own discipline. And then God says, don't listen to the false prophets who say, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. They prophesy a lie to you and you will perish. There will be prophets who say, well, we're just sovereign citizens and we don't have to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have to submit to everybody else, anybody else. And, and God says, don't believe them. Don't listen to them because they're prophesying a lie. And if you do that, you're going to perish. Well, when Jeremiah 
is uh, speaking this prophecy, the kingdom of Judah is still intact at this point, but God puts them under tribute to Babylon. There's a king uh, on the throne of Judah at the time who's named Jehoiakim, and he decides he's going to ignore Jeremiah, and he's going to rebel against Babylon, and he's going to uh, set up an alliance with Egypt. He's going to go to Egypt for help because that always works, right? That always works whenever we go to Egypt for help. And then Nebuchadnezzar's fed up with him and Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. Jehoiakim is killed and Nebuchadnezzar sets up Jehoiakim's brother Zedekiah as king who proceeds to do the exact same thing his brother did. He set up an alliance with Egypt, and then Jerusalem is destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar is completely fed up, and then Judah goes into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Judah is destroyed because of insubordination to the king that God put over them, who was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, God didn't set up Nebuchadnezzar as ruler of the world because God thought he was holy. Uh, He didn't think Nebuchadnezzar was righteous or pure or perfect. But he did this to teach his people how to submit to authority. And it's a lesson we keep missing and we have to keep learning that everyone submits to someone. Every single one of us submit to somebody. And God has put his church in the world as a schoolhouse of submission. We show the world what it's like to submit to each other, to consider each other, and to esteem each other more highly than ourselves. We show the world what it's like to submit to elders, and to submit to presbyteries, and to submit to uh, councils, and to submit to the creeds, and to submit to the confessions, and to submit, above all things, to the Lord Jesus. We show the world what it's like to submit and obey. That's, that's what the church is here for. In, in uh, 1 Peter, um, Peter talks about this. He says, If you suffer for the name of Christ, you'll be blessed. But let none of you suffer as an evildoer or a busybody, somebody who's just fomenting trouble and and insubordination. And then Peter says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Judgment begins at the church as the vanguard of the culture. God has put the church at at the tip, at the point of the culture, so that we show obedience and then the rest of the world is reformed and revived and the rest of the world has life because of the obedience of the church. So in the book of Revelation, it should be no surprise to us then because we know all this. We, sh- we should not be surprised that Jesus begins the work of judging the nations with an inspection of the churches. Before we get to any of the visions of angels or beasts or any of the fire and brimstone in the book of Revelation, we get these pointed messages to the churches. Which means, if you're praying for Jesus to come and sort things out, if you're praying for Jesus to come and fix things, understand what that means when He comes, as He's coming to us first. All throughout the season of Advent, we've been singing songs and hearing the prophets and praying prayers, Oh, come, Lord Jesus. And what we're praying for is for Him to come and sort us out first. Fixing things in the world means fixing the church first. When, when Jesus came in the incarnation, he didn't go up to Rome. He didn't admonish Caesar or his, his guys. Uh, Jesus doesn't go up to Herod's palace when he comes to Jerusalem. Jesus went to who he considered to be the true rulers of the day. Who are the true rulers of the land? Well, it's the Jews and their synagogues. So he goes to the temple. He goes to the synagogues. And that's where Jesus began And that's the first major section in Revelation. Now, remember, as we saw last week, Revelation 
the apocalypse, as it's uh, called in the Greek, the first word is the apocalypse. It's not a vision of the end of the world as we know it. It is a, indeed, a revelation. It is an unveiling. It is an uncovering of Jesus. And so we saw that vision I read just a few minutes ago, that vision of Jesus that's similar to the description of the bridegroom in the Song of Songs. And I'm so thankful that we read that book before we got to this one, because the whole time I was studying reading the Song of Psalms, I said, oh, wow, that's in Revelation. Oh, wow, that's in Revelation. And now that we're in Revelation, it's like, yep, that was in Song of Songs. And, and we keep going back and forth. And that's, that's, I'm so glad we did that study, because uh, that poem is so similar to the ones that we get of the beloved bridegroom in the Song of Songs. And then and then bits of that poem that I read just at the beginning, bits of that poem get inserted into the letters to the seven churches. Now, do you remember that description that I read? Now, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Um, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, uh, Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Well, that was in the vision that we just saw uh, at, in chapter 1. In verse 12, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, thus says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, yeah, in that vision, he had a sharp two-edged sword. In verse uh, 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things say the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Okay, again, it's that, that's all in there. He does it again in, in two more letters. And what that shows us is that the Jesus who walks among the golden lampstands in that first vision, the Jesus... Who, who walks in the heavenly sanctuary of God is the Jesus now who is speaking to his churches words of correction, words of warning, words of blessing. And as, as God walked among the trees of the Garden of Eden when he came to inspect Adam and Eve, now Jesus walks among the trees, these uh, artistically stylized trees, the lampstands. How are the, the lampstands like trees? Well, uh, they stood in the sanctuary of the tabernacle or the temple, and uh, each of the lights had an almond blossom on them, uh, uh, an almond blossom. So, so they're decorated like, uh, artistically like a tree. Now, uh, there's a very close um, similarity between the word for almond and the word for eye or the word for sea. And almonds are kind of shaped like eyes as well. And later, the lights on the lampstands are called eyes in Zechariah. So there's all this multi-layered image there that, that these, are, these are trees. These are almond trees, uh, these, these lampstands. And of course, they're eyes that not only uh, give, uh, take in light, but they're, they're eyes that give light. They search things out and they cast light on them. So here's the image. Jesus is walking among the trees of the garden, just as God did at, at, in the Garden of Eden. Jesus walks through the trees, and, and just as God saw uh, when he walked through the garden, he saw Adam dead. He found Adam dead when he called out his name. Adam was dead in sin, and Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, God the Father uh, raises him up and, and gives him life. So Jesus walks among these trees, and John falls down as dead, and Jesus lifts, lifts him up. Um, so this Jesus reveals his glory and speaks these messages from this heavenly sanctuary, from this heavenly garden of Eden. And he speaks these messages, which he directs to the angels of the churches. In chapter two and chapter three, all seven of these churches that are addressed are addressed through the angel of the church. Now there's a small number of, um, 
of commentators and scholars who say, well, maybe each church has, you know, kind of a steward angel who watches over the church. But, but, but most, um, most scholars agree that these letters are written to the pastors of the churches. Uh, angelos, the Greek word angelos, where we get the word angel from, means messenger. And usually we, we use that word to talk about heavenly messengers. But here in this context, it seems that these are written to, to the messengers of the churches who are the, who are the pastors um, set in authority over the churches. And those are, these are the men to whom John writes these letters. Each of these seven letters has a description or a title of Jesus. There's a warning about an enemy. There's some threat to the church. There's a promise to those who remain faithful. Uh, there's an exhortation to listen to the Spirit as the text is read. They all deal with, all seven of these deal with maintaining good order in the churches, right practice of discipline, defending the truth against heresy, endurance through suffering and trials. And they're all, every one of them, again, written to the pastor of the churches. The message of Jesus comes to these churches through his ordained representative. Uh, you, you don't hear these messages unless you're part of the church. You don't hear the words of Jesus in Pergamos or Thyatira or Smyrna or Sardis. You don't get the words unless you come to church. Unless you come to worship, you don't have the words of Jesus. It pleases God to communicate through the pastors to the churches. And there are significant blessings promised to those who read out loud and those who hear the words of this book. Once again, all of life is hierarchical and God has, has uh, ordained and organized his church in, in a hierarchical way. Jesus comes now to establish order through the ordained representative. And so to the, to the first letter, uh, here now from uh, Revelation chapter 2, the message to Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." When, when Paul went to the city of Ephesus back in the book of Acts, Paul found a city overcome by occultism and magical arts, which had enveloped even the Jews in that community. To, to fully understand the tension that existed between the church and the world of Judaism, the world of old Israel, to fully understand that tension uh, that's being worked through in the New Testament, we have to grasp the extent of Judaism's apostasy in the first century. Uh, they, they are accommodating to Greek philosophy and to pagan ideologies and to heathen practices. It seems like the only thing that they couldn't tolerate was the gospel. 
When Jesus goes to the synagogues, he finds them infested with demons. When Jesus goes casting out demons, he finds them in the synagogues. And the apostles in the book of Acts go out to the synagogues. That's the first place they go when they get to town. And they're opposed in many places by the synagogue, by this maniacal, mean-spirited hatred from, from the leaders of the synagogues. Um, so when the church finally established a beachhead in these cities, many Jews were some of the first converts, but they didn't leave their wacky ideas at the door. They come and they bring all of this garbage in with them, this, this philosophy, this Greek philosophy, this pagan ideology, these heathen practices, they bring them in. And Paul spends the epistles sorting through all of this, working through all of these terrible uh, ideas. This, he, he takes up this war against bad theology, which inevitably is a war against bad application, bad living, uh, disordered lives. And this is a war that, that the church has to continually fight and continue, continue to wage this fight against bad theology, not because ideas in themselves um, are, are everything, but because bad ideas produce bad, sinful, disordered living. Now, that was, that was the environment in Ephesus, the Jewish uh, community had adopted all of this occultism and all this mystical uh, garbage. Now Jesus commends the church at Ephesus saying, I know your good deeds. Among them, among your good deeds is your intolerance of evil. Jesus approves of their intolerance. Nobody wants to be intolerant, right? I don't want to be intolerant. I want to be tolerant. It seems like the only thing that we are intolerant of in our society is intolerance. The only thing you can be intolerant of is intolerance. Otherwise, everything goes. But the very first thing that God told Adam to do in the garden was guard the garden, which means you've got to be intolerant of the serpent. And here in Ephesus, they had to be intolerant of false apostles. Now, he didn't call them to kill them. He didn't call them to persecute false apostles and false prophets. But you do have to keep them out of the garden. You must keep them out of the church. And so that takes works. It, 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 it takes diligence to do this. Uh, you, you have to go to work. And so Jesus commends this church for doing the difficult, draining task of putting false teachers to the test and finding them false. Nobody wants to do a heresy trial. Nobody wants to do an investigation. Nobody wants to have to go to process against somebody. That's not my idea of a good time. That's no one's idea. I mean, there may be some folks who really think this is, you know, good entertainment. But this church did it because they had to. They did it. They investigated the false teachers and Jesus approved of their intolerance of heresy. They did this tirelessly. In verse 3, he says, You have persevered and have patience and have labored in my namesake and have not become weary. This is soul-draining work. This is exhausting work. And yet they haven't become weary. But there is a danger. There is a danger. It is possible to pursue orthodoxy with such zeal that you lose your affection for the brethren. You lose your affection for the church. You forget how to exercise love and grace. You convince yourself all the time that you're just standing for the truth when really you're being severe and mean-spirited and hateful and precisionist and dogmatic. We, we've all known people in our lives that are just, just like that, right? And Jesus, Jesus says to them, you've fallen. You've fallen away. He uses the language of apostasy. He says, he, he doesn't say you lost your first love. No, he said you left your first love. You have fallen from your first love. So what do they have to do? They have to remember the first deeds, go back to the primary things, exercising love for the brethren. 
If you don't do that, if you don't recover some sense of grace and mercy, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to take you out and there won't be a church in Ephesus. Well, at the end, after saying that, he commends them once again for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans uh, who are a heretical cult. Now, they come up again in the letter to Pergamos where we find out exactly what they're up to and who they are. But Jesus says, you hate their deeds. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Um, Jesus doesn't shy away from using the word hate because the Bible doesn't. Psalms don't. Uh, Psalm 5 says, God hates all workers of iniquity. Psalm 139 says, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? There is such a thing as righteous hatred directed primarily toward the deeds of the wicked. He says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I know it sounds like pop Christianity to say, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. But if you want a proof text for that, here's one. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans. Uh, we have to at some times make a distinction between the person made in the image of God who might repent and their deeds which are hateful to God. There is that important distinction that Jesus makes here. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But at the same time, it seems that there are also times in history and times uh, in, when the church is being persecuted or oppressed where there is a sinner or an oppressor or a tyrant who profanes God and abuses others to the point that you can righteously say, you know what, I really do hate them because God hates their deeds. God hates what they're doing to the church. But we have to be very careful using, using that language. James 1 says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so we have to step wisely and walk wisely. At the end of it all, uh, the Bible uses the word hate for both sinners and their deeds. And uh, only in the spirit can we work through exactly what God was requiring us to do in, that, in, in any specific situation. But Jesus boldly uses the word hate, and, and uh, so we can as well. Uh, at the end of this letter, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Doesn't everybody have ears? What does this mean? He who has ears, let him hear. Well, Jesus said this very same thing frequently when he spoke parables. He implies that there are many who lack ears. There are some who can't hear. They haven't had their ears opened by the Spirit, or their love has grown cold and their ears have closed. So those who have ears, listen to what I'm saying. Those who have ears have been opened by the Holy Spirit. Hear the, hear the message. And then he says, to the ones who overcome, who are faithful to love both people and the truth, who love both people and the truth, he says, they will eat of the tree of life. Now, once again, back in the garden, there was a tree of, there was a tree of life in the garden, and that tree directs our attention to our tree of life. The cross is our tree of life, and the fruit that hung on that cross is our nourishment. The body and blood of Jesus is our blessing, is our life, is our food. And he promises to eat anyone to eat of those blessings if they, if they overcome. Let's go to the next letter uh, in, verse, in verse 8 uh, to Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these, say, these things say the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The prevailing question in this point in history is, who are the real Jews? Who is the true Israel? Jesus says there are some in Smyrna who say they're real Jews, but they're really not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Uh, according to Romans and Galatians, the true Israel is, is, is those who have been united with Jesus. They are the ones who inherit all the promises of Abraham and possess the blessings of the covenant. You only get the blessings of the covenant if you're united to Jesus. That is true Israel. The congregation of those who reject Jesus and who persecute the followers of Jesus, he calls them the synagogue of Satan. Satan means accuser. The primary uh, persecutors, the primary persecutors of the early church is not the Roman magistrates. It's not the Greek philosophers. It's not the idol worshipers. The persecutors of the church in the book of Acts are the synagogues, false Israel. They drag Paul and his companions before magistrates and magistrates are always saying, there's nothing to see here. What are you doing? It's Jews who stir up cities in revolt. They go down to the marketplace and they get worthless men in Thessalonica and they stir up a rebellion against Paul and his companions. They pursue Paul from city to city. They take blood oaths to not eat until Paul is dead. And they have persecuted the church in Smyrna, the Lord says here. The persecution of Christians in Smyrna extended at least into the second century because Polycarp was in Smyrna. Some of you know the history and know the name Polycarp, uh, one of the early martyrs of the church. And Polycarp was in Smyrna and Jews were involved in his martyrdom. They asked the local governor to sick a lion on him, tie him up and, and send a lion after him, turn a lion loose on Polycarp. And the governor said, we're not allowed to do that anymore. We've got, a, we've got a moratorium on feeding Christians to lions right now. We can't do that right now. And so they said, well, well maybe you should burn him alive. And the, uh, and the governor said, okay, we can do that. And they did. And, that, and, and Smyrna uh, was where Polycarp was put to death under the influence of the local Jews, under the influence of the synagogues. Now, I wonder what, what, first, Christ, uh, I wonder what first century Christians would think of, of churches who fly Israeli flags. I wonder what they would think of that. Uh, and, and, who be, and, and churches who believe that we have some allegiance to national Israel. What would, what would early Christians think about that? I think it would seem real weird to them and maybe a symbol of disloyalty to early Christian martyrs because it was the synagogue that that was after the church and persecuting the church. And Jesus asserts that this local Jewish community is the, the synagogue of Satan, that they are delusional, they believe lies, they, are, they, they think they're heirs to the promises of Abraham, but they've abandoned that promise, and it's evident in their persecution of the church. Jesus says the church has suffered, and they're about to suffer more. They're going to be thrown into prison and tested for 10 days. Now, we said in the very first verses of Revelation, this book is signified, it's spoken in symbol. For most of the Bible and all the Bible, uh, outside of Revelation, you read it and you assume that what we are reading is uh, to be understood in a literal sense, primarily. But you get to Revelation, and we know that as this is a book of symbol, it, the, our primary setting is that we're going to read it symbolically. And so when he says you're going to be persecuted for 10 days, thrown in jail, they might have really been thrown in jail for 10 days, but it could also be a symbolically short period of time, just like a thousand years is a symbolically long period of time. And he says, at the end of this short testing, this 10-day testing, you'll receive a crown of life, and you won't have to endure the second death 
which is eternal punishment in hell. You suffer for a short time now, but you will be delivered and be blessed and have life forever. Now, this same phrase comes up again in chapter 20, verse 6. And, and listen to this. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So these 10 days of persecution are contrasted with a thousand days of reigning. This is how present suffering compares to the eternal weight of glory. 10 days of trial versus 365,000 days of blessing. That's the, that's the comparison that he's drawing there for these suffering saints in Smyrna. But we're going to keep going to Pergamos in, in verse 12. And we'll probably just end with Pergamos today. Um, so uh, verse 12, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Of all of these cities that are named here, Pergamum was the one where the church would have the most conflict with the cult of Caesar worship. The, this city had built impressively large temples to the Caesars and to the glories of Rome, as well as temples to Dionysus and to Zeus. And the temple of Zeus had a literal throne on the top of a citadel uh, looking down over, over the city. Jesus describes Pergamum as the site of Satan's throne. And so they could read that and think, oh yeah, there's a big throne to Zeus sitting right over our city. Given the idolatrous paganism and, 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 the, and the statism that exists in this town, it's as if Satan has set up his headquarters here. It's as, as if he had established his official operations and center here in this city. Now, now Jesus has already associated Satan with the synagogues, and now he doesn't make any qualifications about also assigning these other deceptions to Satan's work. It's, it's all one big delusion. It's, it's like anything but Jesus. What do, you, what do you want? You want Caesar? You can have Caesar. You want Zeus? You can have Zeus. You want Plato? You want false Judaism? You want the occult? You want mysticism? You can have it. What, what do you want? You can have it. Anything but Jesus. Again, does that, does that not sound familiar to us? What do you want to believe? Well, you can believe anything you want to believe except the gospel in our society today. It's only those who believe and, and hold to the gospel who are going to be uh, hated and, and ignored and marginalized. But you can believe anything else you want and be celebrated. And that was the, that was the situation here. Now, in spite of living in this environment of lies and false worship, Jesus commends them for holding on to his name. He says, you've held on. Sometimes that's all you can do. All you can do is hold on. And that's what God expects you to do. When the culture is crumbling around you, when the church is under persecution, it becomes exceedingly difficult to build institutions, to make inroads into the culture, to change it and influence. If you can just hold on and not deny Jesus, 
You're still ahead of everything and everybody else. Just hold on. Their steadfast faith was evident in the fact that there was a martyr from their church, Antipas, who was killed. They've demonstrated then that their faith is not just intellectual. It's not going to wilt in the heat of persecution, but that some of them are willing to die for the name of Jesus. Yet, even though they made some great sacrifices, there's still more work to be done. He says, you have some people there who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. They hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. He's already told us he hates that back in Ephesus. He told the church of Ephesus the same thing. And here by associating the Nicolaitans with Balaam, we get a little bit more light on his false teaching or, or, or what this false teaching was. Let's quickly remember who Balaam was. Back to, the, back to the Old Testament. In the last days of the wilderness wanderings, before Israel enters the land, Miriam dies, Aaron dies, and they start defeating some formidable opponents on the east side of the Jordan River. They knock down Sion, king of the Amorites. They kill Og, king of Bashan, which is always, it's always a, great, a great name. You think Og, he's a great pagan warlord, Og. I like that name. He's about 11 feet tall. And they kill him, Og, king of Bashan. And then Israel looks across the plains of Moab, across the river, and they set their sights on Jericho to go in and conquer the land after 40 years of wandering. Well, the king of Moab is stirred up to do something, anything to stop this army from marching right over everybody. So the king of Moab hires this false prophet Balaam to curse Israel. But Yahweh prevents that. Yahweh turns his own donkey against him on the way to curse Israel. And every time Balaam tries to curse Israel, God turns it into a blessing. Well, we can't corrupt them from the outside. We can't curse them from the outside. So let's go to plan B. Let's corrupt Israel from the inside out. So they send Moabite women into the Israelite camp to tempt them to sacrifice to false gods, to celebrate an idolatrous feast, to eat uh, meat offered to idols, and to play the harlot, to fornicate. Uh, so he can't get anywhere by, by cursing them, so he tries to corrupt them from the inside by idolatry and fornication. And that attack is successful. The people celebrate this feast to uh, idols. They uh, break out in fornication and harlotry, and God causes a plague to break out on the idolaters. And then God raises up Phineas with a spear. He's an avenger who strikes down everybody caught in acts of rebellion against God, and then the plague goes away. That's the background. That's the, that's the background of Balaam and why Balaam comes up here. Now, whoever these Nicolaitans are, Jesus is calling the heresy the doctrine of Balaam. And what are they doing? They're eating things sacrificed to idols, and they're committing sexual immorality, which is the thing that Balaam tempted Israel to do. Now, where else have we seen these very same two problems mentioned? Well, we, Corinth. In Corinth, we deal with these two things as well. These were the hot issues. These were the false practices, false teachings of the first century that the churches had to defend against. So this group of Nicolaitans might have been a follower of a false teacher named Nicholas. The name Nicholas means people conqueror. The name Balaam means people consumer. And the goal here is to corrupt or to to conquer the church in the name of freedom, in the name of grace, like the problems we had in Corinth. Because we're free, because we're not under any authority, we can do whatever we want. We can eat whatever we like. We sleep with whoever we want. Now, who could have been behind this 
but perhaps the same enemy that we've seen in other places. It's the Judaizers who want to be able to point to the church and say, look at them. They're preaching this freedom from the law, from the law, and look what that gets you. They're outside corruptors trying to uh, curse the church like Balaam and rot it from the inside out. So Jesus commands this church to repent. Get rid of those false teachers and everybody who practices this false uh, belief system. Repent, he says, or I will come to you quickly and I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Jesus will be the greater Phineas who comes and strikes down everyone who is engaged in idolatry and fornication. Now, to the one who overcomes, there are these incredible promises. He says, I will give you some of the hidden manna to eat. God gave Israel manna to eat in the wilderness. It was an alternative to the food at the idol feast. He literally gave them bread from heaven. If you refuse to eat at the table of demons, it doesn't mean that you starve. You have a place at the table of the Lord and he gives you heavenly food. He feeds you with angels food. Remember that some of the manna was kept in a jar and that jar was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And it's this hidden manna, this heavenly bread from the sanctuary of God that Jesus goes in and brings out for us. That's what he promised to do with the woman at the well, right? Remember he said, I have some bread for you that you don't know about. I've got some hidden manna for you. I've got some hidden bread for you. And later he says, I am the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall never hunger. Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies and he brings out bread for us to eat. That's, that's what he says here to this church. He says, I've got some hidden manna for you. I've got, I've got some food for you, some spiritual food. So long as we aren't filling ourselves up at the table of demons, uh, we are fed with this manna. Pick which table you're going to sit at and eat at. And then he says this, he says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except him who gives it. I mentioned this word white is all over the book of Revelation. This word that is symbolizing purity and wholeness and cleanness. The same word can also mean brilliant. It can mean dazzling. It can mean sparkling, white like snow. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' robe is as white as light. It's exceeding white as snow, the Gospels tell us. It's dazzling. It's the same word here. So the promise here is of a dazzling white stone with your name on it a new name, like God often gives his servants when he transforms them and gives them a new job. Abram becomes Abraham. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel. Saul becomes Paul. You give your loved ones pet names. You give your wife or your husband a pet name, you know, sweetie or honey pie or sweetie pie or honey sweetie or honey babe or whatever. You give your children you give your children sweet names, right? Like stinker and knothead and, you know, these little, <laughs> these little names. Sometimes it's names that's only known between the two of you. Well, well, to the one who pushes back from the table of demons, the one who overcomes the temptations to give in to false doctrines, he says, I will give you a new endearing name like the Shulamite gives to her Doty, her beloved, right? Uh, we, we talked about that in the Song of Songs. And he gives them a name and he writes it on a dazzling stone like the stones that the High priest wore on his breastplate with the names of the tribes of Israel inscribed on them. When the high priest went into the sanctuary to stand before God and intercede on the behalf of Israel, he went in with the names of the tribes written on dazzling stones on his breastplate. And so there was Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Asher and Gad. All the tribes were written on his breast as he went in to intercede before God and to pray for them. And so it's a delightful thought to me 
that when our high priest makes intercession for us before the Father, that he does it with our name written on his heart, that he goes in before the Father and intercedes for us with our name on his chest. Remember how the Shulamite woman, she says to Solomon, she says, set me as a seal upon your heart. Could it be that Jesus does Our mighty bridegroom does that very thing, that he writes our name on his chest. He writes it on our heart, just as the high priest wore that breastplate into the sanctuary. Jesus gives these amazing promises to the faithful. But the angel of Pergamum, the pastor of this church, he needs to get to work. There are Balaams and Nicolaitans in the church, and they need to be driven out. He needs to pick up the spear of of Phineas and the sword of the spirit, and he needs to be eaten up with the zeal of his father's house and drive out the heretics, the the Balaamites, the Nicolaitans. What What all these churches have in common is that they're fighting against wicked influences that seek to create disorder and create chaos from the inside out. And this is all that Satan has to offer us. He has to offer us ruling from his weak earthly throne. All he has to offer society is a stream of disruptors, terrorists, revolutionaries, brigands, and agents of chaos. Jesus is the righteous prince who rules justly, who gives all authority structures their design and order. Satan only knows how to abuse authority and power. See, the problems that we have are not with authority. We don't have problems with authority. We have problems with the abuse of authority. When I say problems, I mean we suffer not under authority. We suffer under abusive authority. Jesus rightly uses authority to restore and heal and give life. He does show his muscle here. He flashes his sword, but not against the innocent and not against the weak, but he flashes it against the disruptor and those who are permissive with disruptors, those who bring pain and suffering through disorder and corruption. With his sword, he defends his people against them. So the instruction to the church today is the same as the instruction was to these churches in the first century. Jesus, right now, today, on the day of the Lord, is walking among the lampstands. He is walking among the churches and he's looking. He's looking around for faithfulness. Where do I see it? Do I see faithfulness? Where is it? Jesus draws near and he comes and he's looking for people who are not going to track into his church the influences of a disorderly culture, but who correct that disorder through proper obedience, proper authority, proper submission between husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants, employees and employers, pastors and elders. That's what pleases him. And this is how he's pleased to transform society. This is one of the greatest needs of our day, orderly living. And it begins in the house of God. I've got to stop there. There's so much more to do, but we'll save that for next time in the next letters and pray uh, that God would reveal this more and more to us as we study. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we thank you for these letters to your churches and we pray that we would take them to heart and take them seriously. And that as you come to inspect this candlestick today, Find in us faithfulness, we pray, and correct where we're wrong. Correct everything that is uh, presumably hidden from you. Reveal it and show it and correct it among us, we pray. That you would drive far from us all wrong living, all wrong teaching, all false belief. That you would drive this far from us because we have no desire higher than to please you in everything we do. 
So, Father, as your son comes and inspects us today, we pray that he would find faithfulness, but that he would correct us, that he would bless us, that he would feed us and build us back up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.